Hello and welcome to Dr. Jones's Veterinary Secrets Podcast. This is episode 115. In today's episode, if your dog is wobbly and weak, he may have a condition called degenerative myelopathy. Here's how you can help. Smelly cat, there can be many causes. A fascinating new study on dogs, eye contact, and how it affects people. Dr. Jones's Veterinary Secrets is on all your favorite podcast apps, including Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. I'd love it if you'd subscribe to my podcast and leave a review. Questions or suggestions? Feel free to post a comment about this podcast episode on the blog at www.theinternetpetvet.com. I encourage you to get a copy of my new free book, Natural Health for Dogs and Cats, by going here, www.veterinarysecrets.com. Now let's get right into today's podcast, Degenerative Myelopathy in Dogs. So what is it? It's often abbreviated as DM, and it's a disease that affects the white matter of the spinal cord. With degenerative myelopathy, this part of the spinal cord starts to break down or degenerate, and this results in weakness of the hind limbs that eventually progress to paralysis. With time, the front legs can be affected as well. It's similar to some forms of the human disease ALS, amelotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. What are some of the signs of degenerative myelopathy in dogs? Swaying in the hind end when standing. Easily falls over if pushed. Wobbling. Knuckling of the paws when trying to walk. Often you will see the feet scraping on the ground. Because of that, you often see these worn toenails. Difficulty walking. Difficulty getting up from a sitting or lying position. Falling down when walking or standing. Can progress to an inability to walk, along with complete paralysis of the hind limbs. The first signs are really subtle. I mean, usually there's going to occur in a dog that's past the age of eight. There may just be a little bit of a wobble or swaying when they're standing still. Um, These dogs may have trouble getting up from sitting or lying down, and they can easily fall over if they lose balance. As the disease progresses, symptoms worsen and the hind limbs get weaker. And often this is when you're seeing the feet scraping on the ground. And that's when you can see these abnormal worn toenails, especially if you're looking for it, sometimes even wounds on the feet. Eventually, a dog with degenerative myelopathy, they're going to fall down when they're trying to walk. They'll eventually develop complete paralysis of the hind limbs. And then this can even then progress to the front limbs as well. So what's happening here sort of at a nerve level is that there's a sheath around the spinal cord called the myelin sheath. This is this insulating sheath that helps conduct nerve impulses throughout the body. In degenerative myelopathy, your dog's own immune system is attacking the myelin sheath. This creates a local accumulation of inflammatory cells and this chronic inflammation, it destroys the sheath, leading to progressive nerve tissue damage. The damage usually starts in the back towards the rear, so that's where we're seeing the rear legs are first affected. So what is the cause of degenerative myelopathy? Well, it's now been discovered that it's a specific DNA mutation in a gene called superoxide dismutase 1, SOD1. This risk factor was identified in 2009. There is a DNA test that can be done to check for SOD1 gene mutation, and this is often suggested for at-risk breeds, specifically for breeders, so we know that one, you know, they're not going ahead breeding dogs that are at high risk of this disease. So what are some of the at-risk breeds? American Eskimo dogs, Bernese Mountain Dogs, Borzoi, Boxers, Corgis, Chesapeake Bay Retrievers, German Shepherds, Golden Retrievers, the Great Pyrenees, Kerry Blue Terriers, Welsh Corgis, Poodles, Pugs, Rhodesian Ridgebacks, 
Shetland Sheepdogs, Soft-Coated Wheaton Terriers, Wire Fox Terriers. In my experience in veterinary practice, typically we're looking at the medium to larger breed dogs. How do you go about diagnosing degenerative myelopathy? First, you've got the initial signs and symptoms, right? So your veterinarian's gonna do a full physical exam along with a neurologic exam. In doing that neurologic exam, you're gonna see that there are things like knuckling or you bend over the rear paws or the front paws and your dog doesn't respond. So what's that saying is that there actually is specific nerve involvement. If it was just, you know, arthritis, hip dysplasia, your dog would still respond. But if he's not flipping his paws back up, it's called knucklings. Then we know there's actually a neurologic deficit. There are an array of other different diagnostic tests that can be done. Generally, we're looking at a confirmatory diagnosis based on history, breed, clinical signs, and then the results of that physical and specifically neurologic exam. So then what's the treatment? Unfortunately, conventionally, there are very few, if any, treatments offered. You know, what would your veterinarian say? Certainly, there's no cure. We're going to treat symptoms as they progress to help maintain a good quality of life. Fortunately, there are an array of different alternative options, and there's many, many, I had many, many pet parents say, like, this, some of these really helped. First one, acupuncture. And I definitely save all the different alternative options. If you have access to a veterinary acupuncturist, really use him or her. Acupuncture can work by stimulating the nervous system. They may be using electroacupuncture where they put in the acupuncture needles and they add in a small amount of current. I've had that done to myself. No question, it's really effective. Generally, you're gonna be seeing an acupuncturist once or twice a week. If you're seeing a positive result, there may be sort of a weekly maintenance. And many dogs, I say, really respond well to acupuncture. As far as a therapy all of us can do at home, it's exercise. Constant stimulation of the nervous system helps keep the nerve impulses firing. And that's kind of key, right? When you think about the disease, you've got, there's just less ner nerve impulses. You want these dogs to be still moving around. A 2006 Swiss study of 50 dogs showed that dogs receiving intensive physiotherapy had much longer survival times than others in the study. Those dogs survived over a year as opposed to like those getting no physiotherapy. They listed a survival time of 55 days. Consider hydrotherapy. I mean, it's probably the safest, the most effective form of exercise for dogs that have DM. Like it's such a good supportive way. I mean, we'll always talk about using it for, you know, post-surgery eye dogs that have ACL repair, but it's such a good way to get them in the water, going through the range of motion, using their legs. So if you have access to a pool, you have access to a lake, it's not in the middle of the winter, get your dog swimming as much as possible. It's so, so beneficial. Uh, the last thing I want to discuss is a veterinarian called Dr. Clemens, who's been specializing in treating dogs with DM, degenerative myelopathy. Over the last two decades, we've found two medications which appear to prevent progression or result in clinical remission of DM. And he says in as many as up to 80% of patients. These medications are called EACA, that's aminocaproic acid, and NAC, N-acetylcysteine. We recommend giving EACA as a solution using the generic product. This product, well designed for injection, can be mixed with chicken broth to provide a palatable solution for oral dosage. We mix two parts of aminocaproic acid, that's in the concentration of 250 milligrams per mil, with one part chicken broth and give three mils of the mixture orally every eight hours. An alternative source for EACA is to have a compounding pharmacy make the solution from chemical grade EACA. 
The only side effects that have been attributed to EACA have been occasional gastrointestinal irritation. And acetylcysteine, it's a form of another amino acid that's commonly used to help treat dogs that have DM, degenerative myelopathy. It's also used to help treat dogs that have chronic lung disease. It helps break down some of this mucus that can build up and really plug up the bronchi, the small airways. We're looking at NAC doses. It's about 600 milligrams per 80 pounds of body weight once or twice daily. And there's something then you just have to break it up and you know, giving a quarter of that to a 20 pound dog daily. Daily. You have a dog with degenerative myelopathy, consider adding in EACA, that's aminocarboic acid, along with NAC, that's N-acetylcysteine. Smelly cat. What would you do if your cat is smelling really unusual? You know, cats are super clean and that's been really my experience. So if you notice there's really strong odor coming from your cat, you gotta ask like, what's going on? And why does my cat's rear end smell so bad? So if that's the case, consider some of these potential causes along with what you can do about it. Well, mats, they can cause rear end odor in cats. If there's mats around the fur around your cat's rectum or genitals, you might notice a bad odor right away. The matted hair, it collects urine and sometimes feces. It's gonna make your cat smell really bad, accumulating all that bacteria. You know, these long-haired guys, such as Persians, they can be really prone to matting. You may be needing to sort of groom your Persian on a daily basis. Your cat may develop mats if he or she stops grooming. You know, if your cat becomes overweight, it's more difficult for him to physically reach his rear end. He just can't groom himself properly. It's gonna mat up, you can get you know, urine accumulating in that mats. Maybe you've got an older cat with arthritis who's gonna stop grooming. Develop mats, that secondary smell. So you just gotta be really, watch, check your cat well, watch them, and you know, treat those mats accordingly. There could be a urinary tract infection causing a smelly cat. Your cat could have that bad odor because he's dribbling urine. You've got a bacterial UTI. And when that's the case, you can have that urine around the outside of the skin producing a really strong smell. If you see that your cat has difficulty urinating in any way, get him or her into your veterinarian, get a urinalysis done. They can check to see if there's a UTI. It's a fairly simple thing to treat. Some of the natural options to treat these guys with UTIs, you know, increasing the amount of fluid in your cat's diet, decreasing the amount of stress in your cat. We now know that so often cats with recurring UTIs, it's underlying anxiety is a big cause. So CBD oil is an awesome option. Then lastly, consider a natural antibacterial. Believe it or not, honey is a great option for cats with recurring UTIs. Arthritis, it can cause a stinky cat. Like if this older guy, he's got joint aches and pains. The biggest thing here, he just can't groom himself properly. You can see urine and feces might accumulate around his rear end, producing that smell. You've got an older cat, you're suspecting arthritis, do something to help your cat. No, you can't use the conventional or over-the-counter anti-inflammatories. Once again, you can use CBD oil. A good quality CBD supplement like mine, Dr. Jones's Ultimate CBD for Dogs and Cats, is a great option for an arthritic cat. Being overweight, it can cause a stinky rear end cat. And that was probably one of the more common things I saw in practice, right? These guys are clinically really overweight. Mostly these are cats that are being fed a dry, high carb kibble diet. They gain all this weight. They can get mats in their rear end. They can get additional skin folds and around the rectum, around the genitals, it will trap urine. And in that fold of skin, it gets really infected. So first you need to clip the hair all around your cat. You need to clean that all up. You need to use some type of topical, like a topical antiseptic cleaner, even if you make your own with Castile soap, a little bit of chamomile tea is fine. Then you need to like treat the surface infection, 
right? So something pretty simple, like any type of topical antibacterial or work, even a wipe with just black tea is awesome. Then lastly, you need to get your cat to lose weight. So get them off that dry carp kibble to some canned food. Diarrhea obviously can cause a stinky cat. And once again, you're going to notice that smell. You're going to see the feces. You've got to trim the hair around your cat's anus. You've got to clean them up. Chronic illness, you know, sometimes some of these older guys might see they have a kidney disease, for instance. They can produce quite the smell. You get secondary skin changes, producing a strong, strong odor. So your cat is not eating as much. He's started to increase drinking, increase urination. Him or her into your veterinarian, get some blood work done, rule out what's going on, then treat him appropriately. And then it could be your cat's anal glands. Cats also have anal glands, just like dogs, but for most cats, it's not a problem. Normally, they're just expressed during defecation and you don't see them. But they can produce this really strong, foul scent. And in some cases, they can even become infected. My experience in practice wasn't an issue unless we had these really overweight cats and they would get these often impacted anal glands, producing that pretty strong smell. In general, my experience of most cats are just really clean. They smell great. Really look into it well, like what's going on here with your cat. You look at the rear end for mats, infection, or diarrhea. As I said, you know, overweight cats, they seem to have more anal gland problems. You know, so try to keep the weight off. Monitor your cat well. Groom your long-haired cat. Increase the amount of essential fatty acids in your cat's diet. May decrease the amount of matting. Krill oil is a great option. Stop feeding kibble and switch to canned food. Why we love pugs and other snub-nosed dogs? Guess what? It's in the eyes. Dogs that are snub-nosed, such as pugs, boxers, and bulldogs, are the most likely to look directly into the human eye. So this comes from a new study, and the lead author says eye contact is a really important signal for us as people. And have you ever wondered just why some dogs seem so eager to make eye contact with people and others don't? These dogs that are snub-nosed, young or playful, and those that have been bred to respond to visual clues, such as shepherd breeds, are most likely to look directly into the human eye. And it's that loving eye contact with the dog that can really help build a close human-animal bond. The one lead author study said it's just such a key, key, important thing for us. This is Sophia Bognar, a PhD student in the Department of Ethology and Research as part of the Senior Family Dog Project at the University of Hungary. She's saying it can enhance communication, cooperation, and relationship between dog and the owner. While some dogs might naturally seek eye contact, that doesn't mean others can't learn, Bognar said. Although dog-human eye contact can be affected by at least four independent traits on the dog side. It doesn't mean that there's the only things which determine your relationship with your dog. Other studies have shown that humans and dogs benefit from locking eyes and will increase the amount of levels of oxytocin, that's the bonding hormone. It rises for both people and their pets, specifically our dogs. And so to explore the, what factors might make eye contact more likely, Bogner and her colleagues, they rounded up 125 family dogs for this behavior experiment. So here's part of the experiment. A person would stand in the middle of a room in the lab with a food pouch attached to the belt, called the dog to them, and then they threw a piece of sausage on the ground when the dog arrived. The experimenter then stood still and waited until the dog made eye contact with her and then rewarded the dog with another bit of sausage. The researchers then counted up how many times each dog made eye contact within five minutes. Shorter-headed dogs such as boxers, bulldogs, French bulldogs, Boston terriers, and pugs, they have that earnest gaze because their eyes are structured differently from those other dogs. 
They actually have things, different things in the back of their eye, the retina, which are responsible for initial processing of visual information in the center of the visual fields. That means they can more easily focus on what's in front of them, such as the human owners. Wow, I didn't know that. They're actually now, they are, really are different. It's not just that they look different, their eyes are developed differently. Dogs with long snouts have eyes more geared toward peripheral vision. That's seeing what's beside them rather than what's directly in front of them. Puppies and playful canines were also most likely to stare into their owner's eyes. The working of the herding breeds are natural because they're bred to perform tasks alongside people. They're in continuous visual contact with their owner or handler. Pet dogs that don't naturally seek eye contact, though, they can be trained to do it. You can improve your dog's willingness to form eye contact, which can improve your relationship as well. Dr. Catherine Hopped, a professor of animal behavior at Cornell, said it's a good idea just to train a dog to make eye contact. Because if you say, look, and the dog looks into your eyes, he's not focused on the car going by or another dog he wants to chase. You'll have more control over him as well, as well as having a better relationship. Makes sense. Hope says it's really easy to train a dog to do it. You hold a piece of food away from you, most, if they can't get what they want, they'll look up at you. As soon as they do, you say, look and give the food. After about 20 times, it becomes a command. Okay, I gotta try that. So they, she says, it's really easy to do. You hold, hold a piece of food away from you. Most, if they can't get what they want, they'll look up at you. As soon as they do, you say, look, and you give them the food after about 20 times. Okay. I'm gonna try that in Tula. I'll let you guys know how it goes. Dr. Ann Burroughs, a specialist in evolutionary anatomy, says eye contact is super important to people. I agree. What she says, I volunteer at a dog shelter, and those that make the best eye contact, those dogs in the shelter, the one they're the ones that get adopted first. Okay, that's an interesting little study. I'm gonna try that with little Tula. Thanks you guys for listening to this edition of the Veterinary Supers Podcast. This is Dr. Jones. Questions or comments, feel free to post a comment on the blog at www.theinternetpetvet.com. I encourage you to get a copy of my free book, Natural Health for Dogs and Cats, by going to www.veterinarysecrets.com. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again next week. It's Dr. Jones.